Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, Lenten Preaching Edition, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church, recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Good evening. Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church here in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. Tonight's podcast conversation is part of our Lenten preaching series, Calvary's 98-year gift of bringing messages from prophetic and thoughtful preachers to our city of Memphis and to our world. I'm Paul McLean, Associate Rector of Calvary, and our guest tonight is Jamar Tisby, author of The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, and most recently, How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity, and the Journey Toward Racial Justice. Both books are available here in Memphis at or through Novel Bookstore, one of our partners. Jamar is also a podcaster, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Mississippi, and as we heard at noon today, a powerful preacher. We are very pleased that Jamar is the Marcus Marcus Borg Endowed Speaker for this year's series and follows in the tradition of Marcus Borg of not only asking but wrestling with and living out the difficult questions posed by deep engagement with Scripture. And a little tidbit, uh, Jamar is also a high school classmate of Missy Wilkinson uh, (laughs) from Waukegan, uh, high School in Illinois, and they had a mini reunion a few minutes ago. Go Bulldogs. <laughs> <laughs> to you in the uh, live congregation here and both and you who are live streaming, be thinking of questions as we go along, and uh, you'll have an opportunity here uh, at around 7.15. Heidi Rupke will be our Oprah Winfrey, and we'll go out amongst you and, uh, uh, for your questions. And those of you live stream, you may type them in, and Robin Banks will uh, let us know those questions as well. And uh, so we hope to have some Q&A time, maybe beginning around 7.15 or so. Welcome, Jamar. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Last year, we we did this right, we had a podcast together right after the Lenten preaching series had to be, the second half had to be canceled. We missed out on hearing you preach and uh, having a conversation like this, but we decided to do one anyway in early April. Uh, And you told me at that time, this was about three weeks into the shutdown from the pandemic, you said there's an old saying in the black community that when white people get the flu, Black people get pneumonia. That's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, And that proved very prophetic when the statistics showed, just right after you talked with me, the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on people of color. And my first question is, how have you, your family, and those you love fared during the pandemic? You know, uh, it it has been obviously a readjustment. You know, um, my work has me traveling a lot. Mm -hmm. So when the pandemic struck, I had uh, seven speaking engagements canceled within a week. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, like everyone else, trying to grasp what's going on there. Mm -hmm. The, the, you know, sort of redemptive aspect, if we can call it that, is just a lot of family time. A lot of time spent together. We live in a little tiny town where there wasn't much to do anyway. So uh, we're, we're, we're hanging out with each other and bonding. 
you shared with me too uh, at that time, you like a lot of millennials live in the gig economy. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the gig economy is and, and, <laughs> uh, and what, uh, how, that, uh, how that really affected you during the pandemic. Right. I was saying a minute ago, I, didn't, I don't know what my job or occupation is mm-hmm. because it's several things at once. Uh, I wear multiple hats. And so um, a lot of people in my generation and younger, we have to sort of cobble together mm-hmm. a full-time job and end up actually working far more than full-time, mm-hmm. but not just on one single sort of nine-to-five job, earning a 401k or something like that. Mm-hmm. That is um, not the reality for a lot of us right now. Sure, sure. <laughs> and one thing the, the pandemic showed are, are healthcare disparities, um, obviously, in, in different communities, different neighborhoods. And now uh, the issue of vaccine distribution and also concerns about the vaccine among uh, uh, some black peoples mm-hmm, and other peoples mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. have had experience or adverse experiences with tri- cl- clinical trials or other things. Right. Tell, us, tell us about that. Yeah, so this is a, a sort of a complicated topic. One of the things to say out front is that if we overemphasize the attitudes of um, black people when it comes to the vaccine, then we can easily underemphasize or overlook matters of access, mm-hmm. structural issues. Right. So, of course, um, there are good historical reasons for um, members of the black community to sort of distrust uh, the, these efforts at um, giving a vaccine, even though we know the data is, is telling us it's safe, it's effective, you should take it, all of that. Um, you know, one historical example, obviously, is the Tuskegee experiment where a um, group of black men were promised treatment for syphilis that they never received, unbeknownst to them, but that was the experiment to see what would happen if they went untreated, and of course it wreaked havoc on them, and that was all for science you know, mm-hmm. all for, for um, building up their, uh, the knowledge of a certain group of people. Uh, there are other examples. One really tragic, another tragic one is uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. who's one of my historical heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she was born and raised in the Delta, spent her whole life there even after becoming a national activist. Uh, she had a um, relatively minor procedure to remove uh, some cysts and she went in and went under anesthesia and when she woke back up uh, the doctor without her permission consent or knowledge had given her a hysterectomy wow and uh, that was not uncommon um, in places like mississippi and 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 other states uh, where there was sort of forced sterilization of people considered undesirable and so um that lends to the distrust, of course. These stories get passed down and, and, and things of that nature. Um, but at the same time, I go back to where we started. It's not simply a matter of attitude, but of access. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing, that quote that you mentioned, uh, which is common um, in the black community, is that you know, when white America catches a cold, black America gets pneumonia. And that is to say that whatever issues, natural disasters, a pandemic that affect everyone are going to affect the people who are marginalized even more. Mm 
And uh, that's certainly been the case with this virus. And so in terms of the vaccine, it is a constant, um, it needs to be a constant priority to make sure that uh, not just people in, in the black community, but any sort of marginalized and, and poor communities have access to the vaccine because it's too easy to simply say, oh, those people don't trust it, won't take it, and, mm -hmm. and sort of put the onus on the people for getting the vaccine rather than, rather than saying, how can we justly and equitably distribute this vaccine, mm -hmm. especially to those who can't work you know, remotely, who may not have um, their own cars, who may live in areas like I do without good public transportation. Those kinds of things need to be, I think, at the forefront of the conversation. Absolutely. And you mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer, and I noticed you ended your first chapter with a little of her story yeah. and, and closed the book with the rest of her story. Tell us a little more about her and uh, why she's one of your heroes. Could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Born in 1917 in Sunflower County, Mississippi, to a family of sharecroppers, she was the 20th of 20 children, mm -hmm. which just makes me reflect, you know, having that forced sterilization. She mm -hmm. always wanted a family of her own, having mm -hmm. come from a massive family, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, she did um, adopt two daughters. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was through a formal process, which is another interesting conversation about mm -hmm. um, extended family networks in black communities and fictive kinships and how that works. But she, um, she had everything going against her from an earthly standpoint. She was poor, she was black, and she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And she could have lived and died in obscurity like many other black sharecroppers. Uh, but a couple of things. One, she was born and raised in a rural black Baptist tradition. Her mama, her daddy, they all preached to her, shaped her with the gospel. And she grew up with a very grassroots practical understanding of the faith. It's what got you through day to day in the context of suffering. And, and, and I say all that because that primes her mm -hmm. for what happens in um, the early 1960s. She uh, reluctantly goes to an, a, a, an informational meeting mm -hmm. at William Chapel uh, Baptist Church in Ruleville where she lived. And it was there that she heard a couple of civil rights workers talking about voting rights. And at the end of the presentation, they asked, who wants to volunteer to go register to vote? And she said, I raised my hand high as it could go. <laughs> and this was remarkable because she's 42 years old wow. at this point. Mm -hmm. And you've got folks, so she becomes affiliated with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is students. Mm -hmm. So she's with teenagers, literally, wow. 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Um, you know, John Lewis is president or chairperson um, gets elected chairperson in 1963, and he's in his 20s, you know. So it's really remarkable that she begins her sort of public activism this, quote-unquote, late in life, mm -hmm. and she does it with this group that is comprised of students, but she does it because, one, they were basically the only civil rights group uh, very active in Mississippi. NAACP had a presence. You know, Medgar Evers was the field secretary. Um, SCLC had, had done a little bit there, but nobody really got a foothold till SNCC came in with all these youngsters with nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. 
and with a very sort of flat uh, structure in terms of hierarchy and leadership, very collaborative. So they're the ones actually going out into the sharecropping fields and the plantation fields and talking to the poorest of the poor like Fannie Lou Hamer. And she basically said, if anybody um, is concerned about people like me, I'm going to be part of what they're doing. So mm -hmm. she has this dramatic life, very tragic in many ways. Um, she's coming back from a training, voter rights training, and her and her group of uh, black activists get arrested, taken to this jail in rural Mississippi, and she gets beaten so severely that she has chronic health issues for the rest of her life, walks with a limp, has kidney issues. Uh, one of the cruel, cruel aspects of that was the white police officers forced two black um, inmates mm -hmm. to, to render the beatings under threat of even worse punishment. Uh, so turning you know, black folks against each other. She turns that tragedy into a testimony though. Mm -hmm. And specifically in 1964 at the Democratic National Convention, she gives a televised testimony. Lyndon B. Johnson, who was president at the time, was so concerned about how disruptive that testimony was because you can hear her voice, I mean, her, it's a strong voice, but it is steeped in the cadence of the Delta. She only achie achieved a sixth grade education, and so it didn't sound like you know, King testified uh, at, at the Democratic National Convention. And uh, although they both were from the South, they were from very, very different lifestyles, right? Mm -hmm. so, so Hamer carried with her the aura of authenticity. No one could question. She, she had unassailable credentials mm -hmm. as far as what America was capable of when it came to racism, white supremacy, economic exploitation, uh, uh, patriarchy, all of that. Mm -hmm. so, so she made a very powerful figure. And uh, LBJ was so concerned about the, the, the disruptiveness of her testimony that he interrupts that broadcast with a um, press conference about the nine-month anniversary of something. Mm -hmm. Who celebrates the nine-month anniversary? <laughs> so it was all, all a sham, yeah. but it worked. It backfired because later the, the major networks, they, they aired her testimony in mm -hmm. full. But um, it's a tragic story because she admirably remained in Mississippi, remained in the Delta, didn't go on to other things where there were more money or more resources, whatever. She um, drained herself traveling around the country to raise money and speak. Um, she started Freedom Farm Cooperative, which was designed to help poor black and white people. Uh, she had a pig bank where you would get a, a mother pig. Once it had piglets, you would return the pig and raise the other pigs. Mm -hmm. It was very innovative stuff uh, around economic justice, but um, died in 1977 with a host of chronic health issues, relatively alone and almost broke. Wow. Um, so it's a, it's a sobering illustration of the cost of discipleship mm -hmm. and the cost of doing racial justice. But through it all, through it all, her faith was not incidental to her activism, it mm -hmm. animated her activism. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really appreciate about her. Yeah. Now, as you're telling her story, I, I, you can just feel your passion for history and storytelling. Story and your first book, uh, uh, and, and really The Color of Compromise, got into 
the history, the history of the American church, our, the complicity. You get into the story that you illuminated in the sermon today about Billy Graham and Martin Luther right, King Jr. Right, right. and lots of other stories. By the way, before I forget, Common just announced he's doing a biopic of Fannie Lou Hamer. Wow. So if anybody knows Common, let them know that there's somebody on the ground who can well, help comment on that. But yes, good. we were talking about uh, Graham. Well, <laughs> well, just talking about your passion for history, what, what I found interesting is you chose for your second book, although you touch on history in this, it, it, it begins how-to. It's basically yeah. a how-to manual yeah. on how to fight racism. And it's really, you took the last chapter of your book, The, uh, the Color of Compromise, where you talk about what do we do with this. Mm -hmm. And this whole book is what do we do with this. Right. And, uh, but I, I'm wondering about you kind of deviating from your passion for history. Why was it so important to write this book? Yeah, I, I thought this book or the subject of this book would be my first book mm -hmm. because I was so fired up. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see, to see people take action. So I'm like, the first book I write, it's got to be about taking action. Mm -hmm. um, through a confluence of events, uh, not least of which I was in um, the coursework for my PhD and, and literally reading hundreds of books mm -hmm. on history and it, it, it was emotional. There's a, a recent article out about can historians be traumatized by the history they study? Mm. Because whatever discipline you're in, whether it's labor, gender, race, um, it's horrific stuff. Yeah. It's really horrific. So you're sitting there, you know, in my case, reading about lynchings, mm -hmm. um, about, uh, uh, you know, Christians saying horrendous things and passing horrible laws and, um, you know, even Fannie Lou Hamer's story, right? Like, and you sit there and you know the names and the dates and the places and that sticks with you and it's really, really heavy. But I wanted to use that. And, and, and my premise was simple for The Color of Compromise. I figured if this moves me, it might move others. Yeah. And that was also my burden to act, that, that fierce urgency of now. When you know in more detail how bad the history is, mm -hmm. it makes you want to take action all the more. So that was my theory and, and with the color of compromise and so I just picked the stories, it's a historical survey so you can't touch on everything, right? Mm -hmm. So the hardest part was selecting stories obviously. But, but one of my guides was what moved me, mm -hmm. you know, what made me angry, what made me hopeful, what inspired me, what demoralized me and include those in hopes of evoking a reaction because the whole book is really a setup to get to that last chapter mm -hmm. in The Color of Compromise, which is about practical steps we can take. Mm -hmm. But I never wanted it to end there. Mm -hmm. um, most of the books that I read on race uh, only include real practical elements, maybe at the end of a chapter or a single chapter, just like I did in my first book. So like you said, this book, How to Fight Racism, is an expansion of that because the point of knowing this history, I think, is to motivate us to action. Yeah. And I wanted to give us a framework and, and uh, a start for that. Right. And you, you, you just mentioned lynchings, and I've been reading a little bit about uh, Ida Wells mm. and uh, how she chronicled the lynchings yeah. here in Memphis and in our surrounding area. And, uh, you know, we, we had our conversation that we had Sunday morning about some of your work. We talked about how how the uh, seeing the George Floyd event, the death, affected us. And I, I thought, you know, this is what Ida Wells probably witnessed when she That's saw exactly a lynching. Right. That's exactly well, she, Yeah, I mean, it was her friend mm -hmm. who got lynched. Yeah, you know, Tom um, Moss. She was to be the god, she was the godmother of his uh, uh, a child. Yeah. 
And it, it was that personal experience with it, with somebody she knew well, mm -hmm. that said, you know, Ida B. Wells said, I'm going to use my prodigious talents as a writer and an investigator. She's an investigative journalist yeah. to, 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 to bring these atrocities to light and got ran out of Memphis for yeah. it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, you, you began this book, the, your second book, Something is different this time, and I take it you were probably writing this around the summer of 2020 or shortly thereafter. Go back and rewrite it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. And, uh, and uh, you, you leave open the question, but, uh, but uh, where are you on this question right now? Do you believe the events and protests from the, that summer, that fateful summer, will lead to lasting transformations in racial healing and justice in our country? Well, it's uneven. You know, racial justice is a bit like pushing a string. You know, there's going to be advances in some areas, other areas are going to be left behind. And at, at the same time, there are other people pushing on the string in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So it's a very dynamic uh, thing. But what tends to happen, historians call all of these efforts to resist racism and white supremacy, they call it part of the, the black freedom struggle, mm -hmm. um, which goes back to, you know, the late 15, 1400s, really. Mm -hmm. um, and there are various waves. You know, there's the abolition movement, there's um, the civil rights movement, now we have the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And what happens with each of these waves is that you push the culture, institutions, people a little bit further in the direction of racial justice. It doesn't mean change is inevitable, and it doesn't mean change once it comes can, can't be stripped away, mm -hmm. right? I mean, even in 2021, we're still fighting for voting rights, mm -hmm. right? But we have the Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. um, and we have the Voting Rights Act. And so, you know, the movement 60 years ago secured some legislative gains that we can now, in the 21st century, appeal to, you know, uh, as a basis for further civil rights. So I think that is what's happening now. You're seeing it, um, signs of it. It was, uh, I think it's the mayor of... Ithaca literally uh, uh, is proposing to abolish the police force, dismantle it, mm -hmm. and reconstruct it. There'll be some um, law enforcement officers who are armed to deal with a very specific set of circumstances where uh, physical violence is, um, there's a potential for physical violence, but there's a much larger force of people who are there to intervene um, from a mental health and a social work perspective, they're not armed. They are going to be trained in, you know, de-escalation and discourse. And it's just a reimagining of it. These are things that, um, you know, even five or six years ago would have been fanciful. Mm -hmm. There is a commission. Now, it's a, it's, 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 it's a committee. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a committee's a committee. Mm -hmm. But there's a... a um, a proposal on the table now at the federal level to establish a federal study commission uh, on the topic of reparations. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, that's something that has it's actually been proposed since the late 80s and hasn't gained traction, but it is gaining traction now. They held a hearing for it a couple years back. And um, as I mentioned earlier today in the sermon, you know, things, symbolic changes. Uh, which I, I don't think minimizes the importance of the change, that it's symbolic, but things like this state flag of Mississippi coming mm -hmm. down, you know. Yeah. So all of those, I think, point to signs of change. Nothing is inevitable and nothing is irrevocable. Mm -hmm. But I do think we are in 
certainly in my lifetime, a pivot point when it comes to racial justice. And whether it's a movement, whether lasting change comes of it, is not up to you know, some vague, impersonal force. It's up to us. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. up to us and how we respond in this moment. So if we want it to be a time of lasting change and a turning point in this nation, then we have to do something about it. And you, uh, you build your book around this model you call the arc of racial justice and ARC, Awareness, Relationships, and Commitment. Uh, tell us about And you basically shape it as a triangle <laughs> with a circle around it. And you say you can enter the circle at any time. Right, and you right. tell the key is don't get paralyzed by trying to do it all. Do something. Do something. That's right. <laughs> right. That's right. But tell us, tell us each of the three points and why they're so important and how do they tie together? Well, I mean, it's important, I think, to, to understand sort of the genesis of this framework. Whenever I talk about racial justice, white supremacy, you know, if there's a Q&A portion, the mm -hmm. question is always, what do we do? Mm -hmm. Which I love that question because it tells me two things. One, it tells me that the person asking it recognizes racism isn't simply a problem of the past, it's a problem of the present as well. Mm -hmm. There are people out there who think, well, we passed the Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. or, you know, we don't have... Um, people in white robes and hoods anymore. They're in khakis and polo shirts right now. But uh, they'll say, you know, they'll basically take the attitude, racism ended. You know, why, what's, what's the big deal? So if somebody says, what do we do? That means they understand racism hasn't ended. The other thing it says is they want to be part of the solution. And I find that hopeful. Um, but I was also frustrated with my response to those questions because it would be this smattering of different practices I would recommend, and it would be random in the sense of, you know, whatever happened to be on my mind at that particular moment. And I just had the sense that, um, you know, it was going in one ear and out the other, and people weren't remember. I didn't remember it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, maybe what would be even more helpful than specific things to do is a framework to help us mm -hmm. interrogate our racial justice practices mm -hmm. and constantly hone them. That's where the arc of racial justice comes in. Awareness, relationships, commitment is the acronym. And uh, I think you need all three components for a holistic approach to racial justice. So you need to build your knowledge. Um, you need to access the data. You need to understand how race and racism function. Uh, but you can't just have a big head. You've got to have a big heart, too. Mm -hmm. And certainly within the Christian frame, all reconciliation is relational. I say in the book that when God wanted to reconcile a people, God didn't send a tweet or a TikTok video. God <laughs> sent a person. God yeah. sent uh, Jesus Christ to establish relationship, right? And uh, that is still vital in this work of racial justice because we have the tendency to sort of paint other people one-dimensionally or two-dimensionally. But when you cross these social and cultural boundaries, to get to know other image bearers, mm -hmm. uh, that builds empathy, and empathy is the foundation for action. But especially in um, sort of the white evangelical frame of racial reconciliation, they tend to stop mm -hmm. at the relational part. Mm -hmm. So that's where you get the line, oh, some of my best friends are black, mm -hmm. you know? Or, you know, we have this great relationship with the black church across town. All of that's good, but what I say is, you know, all of your heart-to-heart -heart conversations over cups of coffee or tea aren't going to do anything about mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. All the pulpit swaps or choir, choir swaps, those are great. It's not going to do anything about um, fighting voter suppression. Mm -hmm. So that's where the commitment aspect comes in. Commitment really stands for 
changing the laws and the policies and the practices of institutions and systems that govern the way we interact with one another. And then the, the sort of, so that's the triangle part. The circle around it means it's not a linear process. You don't move from awareness to relationship commitment. Right. In that it's all kind of happening at once and you're never done. You know, like when you, when, when you reach age 43 and you practice this, you're, you know everything there is. It's a, it's a lifelong right. process. I, I, uh, as you were preaching today, I was thinking about this book is to reminds me of a little bit of the rule of St. Benedict. Mm. It's, a, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting how we study that theologically, but it's really a monastic how-to guide, mm. how to be a monk. That's right, that's right. This is really how to be a, a human being that loves and respects one another. I like that, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about racial reconciliation, and you, you uh, touched on your, your experience with the evangelical tradition, and you, right. you talk about promise keepers, you know, a one-time kind of hug, but then what mm -hmm. happens after that, mm -hmm. and, and uh, Southern Baptist Convention, I grew up in that tradition, okay. you talk a little bit about that, yeah, about one-shot things. Uh, yeah, I was talking with another scholar who's doing a lot of work around racial justice, and she actually named her center not a center for racial reconciliation, but a center for racial healing. Mm. And she said, I, she disputes the term reconciliation because she argues that there was no relationship to begin with mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. conciliate. Right. And uh, you use the term racial reconciliation and use, use it, reconciliation has a lot of theological right. weight to it too. Yes. But tell us what you mean when you talk about reconciliation and why you still use that term. Yes, so um, some folks use ethnic conciliation or some other term because uh, the way race has been socially constructed, there was never a time of peace mm -hmm. between people of different races, right? Uh, so why would you use the word reconciliation? Well, I, I sort of give two reasons. One is reconciliation is a Bible word, right? Mm -hmm. So, so um, I like using the language of Scripture when possible. And as we talk about uh, peace between people of different races and ethnicities, we go back to... Um, you know, passages from Ephesians where Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And um, in Galatians, he's talking about the, the great mystery hidden from the ages is that Gentiles will be enfolded into the covenant uh, of promise with God, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, reconciliation between God and humanity is, is the foundation of reconciliation between human beings and one another, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to use that term. And one of the things that's beautiful about it is um, this reconciliation with God is achieved on the cross. Mm -hmm. And if that is achieved, then there's a sense in which the reconciliation we need amongst each other is not something to achieve, but something to receive, mm -hmm. a gift mm -hmm. that is already there for the taking if we will take it up. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one of the theological groundings for it. And then as to the, you know, there was never a time of peace between the races. Um, you know, I wonder how far back you go, mm -hmm. right? Because why would, why would God call it reconciliation? Mm -hmm. when, were, when were we at peace with God? You would have to go back to the Garden of Eden, right? right. So if you want to do that, you could um, as far as peace between uh, people of different races and ethnicities. So, you know, it's, it's more than semantics, but uh, I think, you know, as long as people explain their terms, there's, there's a variety of approaches we can take. Yeah. 
Another term that can be weighted, we talked about Sunday morning, that can be weighted in the Christian traditional is, is hospitality, mm. what that really means. And I love that you included a quote in the first chapter from Willie James Jennings oh saying, Indeed, it is though Christianity, wherever it went in the modern colonies, inverted its sense of uh, hospitality. It claimed to be the host, the owner of the spaces it entered, and demanded native people enter its cultural logics, its ways of being in the world, and its conceptualities. Mm. And this quote really spoke to me because my wife, who is part Cherokee, has helped me get a glimpse of the world wow. through native eyes. And um, my question is, I guess, how do we turn the tables on this inverted hospitality? <laughs> Willie James Jennings is going to make you think. <laughs> With that quote, as I sort of mull it over, you know, there are ways that a sort of imperialistic European white Christianity a colonialistic kind of uh, faith inhabits cultural spaces, mm -hmm. forces people to speak a different language, change their clothing, worship in a prescribed way, all of that. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sort of theological colonization. Mm -hmm. And so you'll hear a lot of people talking about decolonizing their faith. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly what they mean is that um, the Christianity of the Bible, which is multi-ethnic, multilingual, multinational, becomes European, becomes white. Mm -hmm. And so to, to, to grasp the fullness and the breadth of Christianity, you sort of have to extricate that part, or at least add to it as if, you know, it, you know the European and white expressions of Christianity aren't the sum total, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think about this just a very sort of, it might be esoteric, but a, a, I think a parallel can be made with, I don't know if y'all are familiar with this controversy over critical race theory. We saw this happening in the church. It reached the White House under the previous administration. There was an executive order against certain forms of sort of uh, you know, racial justice training in, in federal agencies and whatnot. And, uh, you know, basically very conservative, fundamentalist, Christian nationalist kind of Christians have made critical race theory into this boogeyman. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's the new label. They used to use communist, Marxist, liberal, whatever it might be. Critical race theory is, is, is the latest one. But it's one of these things that feels like colonization mm -hmm. because they've taken this framework which was, you know, popularized in legal studies and have invaded its logics, trying to take it over with this conservative fundamentalist white evangelical Christian frame mm -hmm. and remake it in an image that it was never intended to be. And so we have to be, what do we do about that? What I think was the, the, the root of your question is we, we have to, we cannot let um, our opponents constantly frame the debate. Mm -hmm. We cannot let them set the terms of discussion every time. Mm -hmm. So when somebody, you know, sort of a, a attacks me with the critical race theory label, I reject the premise. Mm -hmm. And I come back with, you think critical race theory is the threat. Talk to me about Christian nationalism. Because that has been and is empirically far greater of a threat to the witness of the church in the United States than anything they say about critical race theory. So we reframe it in a way that, that is more helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And you and I, you, you, you told me earlier today that you'd like to hear some stories of how things are, people are acting on some of the things, ideas in your book. And uh, we have an interesting story this year. Hmm. When you and I talked in April last year, we, we talked about the effectiveness of our efficiency of our community breakfast program that we do on right, Sunday mornings. Right, right. Uh, we serve, you know, 100 to 200 people in our mural room. Uh, typically every Sunday, but the pandemic kind of blew that up. It was really efficient. People would come in at 7, have a brief devotional, would be served, would go to uh, to our clothes closet, receive clothes, would get out. Some may, a few may stay for our 8 o'clock service. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this year we had to blow that up because of the pandemic. No, people could not be in that confined space. So we moved it outdoors and it became like a, a, a farmer's market or like a holiday, a shopping bazaar. And it was amazing how opening up people, it built relationships. People got to know each other's names Mm. and it no longer felt like the host guest or the host, host, uh, the paternalistic structure just felt like it went away. And it was more like we're, we know each other's names and it it was amazing how that transformed that. Right, right, right. uh, That is a great illustration of it and even it's really interesting how even just changing the physical space started to change the the relational dynamic as well i love to hear that right you know as i was thinking about that we, we talked a little bit sunday uh thinking about what it means to be a host or a guest hmm. you know a, a host is in control you control the conversation you control the dynamics a guest you're vulnerable hmm. and you kind of have to go with the space and a lot of us white people are not used to being guests right right that's right yep uh, Different experience. Um, You know, um, one of the things you write is the truth is the racial segregation we see on Sunday is downstream from the racial segregation we tolerate Monday through Friday. And last year you told us this uh, when uh, when you joined our book study. You were so gracious to do that our final night. It was you and 29 white folks (laughs) around you. And and one of our one of our members uh, addressed the elephant in the room and said said how. Why is it this way? How could we, we're a progressive church, how could we have more black members? And yeah. we, we have some, but not very many. You would think with our views that we would have, or our openness, right. we would have more. Uh, and you told us something really interesting. You said to have integrated churches, you must live integrated lives. That's right. Uh, and can you kind of flesh out those statements for us, the, the Monday through Friday and the, the integrated right. lives? What does that mean? I mean, the way we invite most people to church is it's the people we know. It's the people we work with, live next to, the folks in our families, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's seldom this sort of cold call where it's someone you don't know very well or don't have frequent interaction with that you say, hey, come to church. You might try that, but we all know the sort of success rate of those kinds of attempts. Um, it's, it's mostly through organic relationships, right? Mm-hmm. And if our social networks are racially and ethnically homogenous, why would we expect anything different on Sunday, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this um, really interesting uh, infographic in the Washington Post a few years back that basically said in a 100 friends scenario, the average white person would have 91 white friends and one black friend. Mm-hmm. And then the remainder were you know, people of different races and ethnicities. Um, for black people, it was something like um, we would have, on average, 66 black friends. So you know, still the majority are the same race. But I think we had eight or nine white friends yeah. in a 
different scenario. And so, I mean, that's eight or nine times mm -hmm. the interaction as a white person would have with a black person. And until those kinds of things change, it's gonna be really hard because even if you put this monumental effort into seeing multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches on Sunday, that's great for an hour mm -hmm. or two hours, however long your church service is, and then what? Scatter back to mm -hmm. your life. So the really hard part, if you're talking about integration, you know, a lot of people will make the distinction between desegregation and integration. Mm -hmm. So desegregation is removing the barriers. It's saying, you know, it's not turning away black people from the church. It's mm -hmm. taking down the signs that say for colored people only, right? But that's a far cry from integrating people, which is inviting them into the life of your organization, your family, whatever it might be. And true integration happens only very rarely uh, because you're talking about equity, you're talking about power sharing, you're talking about not just taking down barriers but proactively going out and reaching across barriers to bring people in. Mm -hmm. um, so what really needs to happen if we look at the history of the US, um, residential segregation and structures like, like redlining and mm -hmm. the denial of home loans to black people and all of that designed to keep people living apart. And then um, even in my town where I live, there's a white segregation academy. Mm -hmm. It started in 1970 or 71, somewhere around there. And it was deliberately to keep the white students away from black students as the schools were desegregating, right? So as long as we have you know, segregated schools, which in many districts are more segregated now than they were mm -hmm. in the 60s or 70s, uh, it's gonna be very hard for us to see integrated worship on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we wanna really get down to the nitty gritty, those are the kind of things we're gonna have to deal with. Yeah, and in our conversation Sunday, we talked about how, yes, we would love for Calvary to be more diverse, but at the same time, many of our partners and what we see in the city and what you disclosed with Fannie Lou Hamer's story is the power of the historic black church. That's right. And, and that it's, there's a need for that in, uh, in the community. And, and how do we balance that as Calvary and, and other churches mm -hmm. that are facing this? We would love to be more diverse, but yet at the same time, we want to value the black church. How do we, mm -hmm. how do we navigate that? How do we do that? You know, I mean, so I uh, was talking earlier in the day about uh, the state of Iowa, which is one of the whitest states in the union. It's over 90% white. You know, are there churches in Iowa that no matter how passionate they are about racial justice, are they really going to be racially and ethnically integrated? Because there's actually not the physical presence mm -hmm. of people there. And so are they automatically out of this sort of racial justice conversation or effort? I don't think so, because I think there are ways that even in predominantly white or even um, racially homogenous churches, you can come alongside and be an ally and an advocate, right? Mm -hmm. So what this church is doing to support various ministries, to open up its beautiful facility um, for people, the openness, you know, inviting a speaker like me uh, to come and talk about race, right? Like those are all things that may not result in, you know, this United Colors of Benetton ad on Sunday. <laughs> But is that really the hope and the goal, right? Yeah. I mean, that's nice, but what if you had that but didn't do all of these other things? Yeah. Then it would just be window dressing. Then it would just be the photo op for the website or whatnot. So right. I'm not convinced that um, 
you know, obviously we, 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 we need to sort of interrogate our worship, particularly on Sunday mornings, to say, are we putting up needless barriers mm-hmm. to inclusion, mm-hmm. right? But that's different than saying that the effort, all the effort, all the energy, and the only way a church can be for racial justice is to have the physical presence of tons of different races and ethnicities. And it's a thin, you know, you, don't, you know the, the, the line I'm trying to walk here. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to let churches off the hook mm-hmm. for being racially homogenous. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot we can do. I mean, when I walk into a church, just to be very practical, what immediately strikes me is the visual. And if it's a sea of white, I'm on my guard because I don't know what, what they believe, right? Mm-hmm. But then what the church believes starts to come out in various ways. Um, obviously, the music is one, but even deeper than that, sermons, right? Like the sermon illustrations. Are they quoting nothing but white people? Mm-hmm. Are they using cultural references that only white people would know? To, to, to sort of date myself, it's the difference between uh, referencing, um, you know, Friends, the sitcom Friends, and uh, Living Single. <laughs> you know, okay. One has an all-white cast, and Living Single has an all-black cast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to things like Call and Response, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would signal to me some of the cultural um, sensitivity there. Uh, I look at the programs, right? Are these programs that require you to have a car, a lot of money, you know, lots of sort of discretionary time and income mm-hmm. that uh, many people from poorer communities and black and brown communities don't have? So there's a lot of things we can do to interrogate our practices and make sure that we don't have unnecessary barriers mm-hmm. to people coming in. But I just don't think that's the end all be all or the only thing that we can do. Thank you. Uh, I think we're at about seven, the 715 point. I'd love to turn it over for some questions now. Uh, uh, is there someone in our congregation, first of all, right here, who has a question? And Heidi will come to you. Just, just Let me do this hand. while people are um, thinking of their question. It's a book called How to Fight Racism, and I want to make sure people get something practical. Um, <laughs> so on the awareness level, I am encouraging folks to... Um, do a couple of things. One, in terms of building your awareness, I would prioritize, selfishly, uh, the study of his history. Mm-hmm. I just think history is really transformative mm-hmm. as we get exposed to these truths because we have a very impressionistic sense that this country has a racism problem. But you really gotta dive in and hear the story of you know Vernon Damer who was killed in Mississippi for not paying the poll tax mm-hmm. and um, burned alive, basically. He survived the, the fire, but his lungs had been so burned he, he died later from his wounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to hear about Ida B. Wells and mm-hmm. how she got catalyzed mm-hmm. into the racial justice movement and, and writing the red record and exposing lynching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to uh, know that Rosa Parks was a lifelong activist and uh, was, was the, the sort of 
expert on staff that the NAACP sent down to investigate the rape of Reese Taylor long before uh, she, she didn't move her seat on the bus. So that's one thing for awareness. Another thing for awareness is to write your own racial autobiography. And again, if we can really dive down into the details and write it down, mm -hmm. and it's asking yourself questions like, what's my first memory of race? Mm -hmm. Have I ever used or been called a racial slur? Um, what did my parents teach me? And writing that story, and it doesn't have to be from beginning to end. Some of us have lived a lot of years, it would take a long time to write. It can be a particular season of your life, college or elementary school or, 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 or whatever, but, but we have a lot of inner work to do mm -hmm. as we do this external work. Um, when it comes to the relationships aspect, that one's tricky. Mm -hmm. It's really tricky, especially for white people, because for now, um, adults are still in the numerical majority, and so you outnumber a lot of people. Um, but it, how do you put yourself in the path of people from uh, different races and ethnicities in a meaningful way, mm -hmm. right? And I think that comes um, almost like a sports team mm -hmm. where you have some other objective winning the game. And because of that, you form a bond as a team. Right. And so I think of, you know, in a city like Memphis, what are the sort of organic groups that are already happening, civic groups, religious groups, whatever it might be, that are in pursuit of some other goal? Could be, you know, a school board you know, or, or a parent-teacher association or something like that, where you're coming together for some bigger purpose or objective, and, and, and in the midst of that, you're, you're building connections and relationships. But then strategically looking for opportunities where it's not just going to all be white people, right? Mm, exactly. Um, and then on the commitment level, there are so many, but the two that come to mind are criminal justice reform and um, voting rights, mm -hmm. especially voting rights, because right now, uh, you know, a certain party is gearing up for 2022 by changing the rules. And because there are two ways you can react when you lose an election. You can say, okay, we need to go back to our platform and tweak things and you know, adjust our message so that we appeal to a, a wider number of voters. That's how democracy is supposed to work. The other way you can respond if you lose is to say, well, we're just gonna change the rules no matter what the majority of people want. We're gonna make it so. So this is what happened in Mississippi historically. Mississippi has 81 counties and the state population is 3 million, mm -hmm. which is smaller than some metro areas around the country, right? Mm -hmm. But um, they made it so to win a statewide election, you not only have to win a majority of votes, you have to win a majority of counties, mm -hmm. which makes it almost impossible for a Democrat or a black person to win because uh, black people who tend to vote Democratic are concentrated in the Delta, mm -hmm. one region of the state, and in Hines County where Jackson, Mississippi is. Mm -hmm. And the rest is predominantly white rural communities. Sure. And so there's almost no way uh, a Democratic candidate or a black candidate can win in the majority of counties, right? So this is a voting rights issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, we can go on and on about criminal justice reform. And, and I just don't want people to forget mm -hmm. that the 2020 uprisings were what spurred them was anti-black police brutality. Mm -hmm. Murder Absolutely. of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, vigilantes thinking they're cops, mm -hmm. killing Ahmaud Arbery, you know. Um, 
so there's so many justice issues. I just mm -hmm. don't want us to forget that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Heidi, do we have a question uh, from our live streamers? Okay. Yes. Robin? Kate Church says, on January 6th, when I watched the riots at the Capitol, I was sickened to see a lynching rope and the mob. It had nothing to do with election challenge, but a lot to do with white power. What was your thinking when you witnessed this? Whew. I still think a lot about January 6th, and I hope the rest of the country still thinks a lot about it. Um, obviously, a noose and a gallows conjures up memories of lynching mm -hmm. and um, white racial terrorism. And I mentioned this in the sermon earlier today. We just don't give enough uh, attention to the fact that the Department of Homeland Security named white supremacist extremism as the biggest domestic terror threat, right? Mm. And it, 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 the whole spectacle reminded us that at the end of the day, white supremacists are willing, even eager, to use violence to protect their power. Do we have another question? And we have one oh, from your old classmate. Uh-oh. <laughs> she's, got, she's got some <laughs> stories, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, you talked a little bit about how grading um, an immersion in history can be on one's psyche, especially with difficult or, you know, disgusting subject matter. Could you talk a little bit about um, maybe how history plays a role in informing your faith? Mm. How history Personally? plays a role in informing our faith? Yeah. What a great question. Because yeah. it had a huge impact on my conception of Christianity in particular. As we read about folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, who wore her faith on her sleeve, right? She was famous, not just for singing, but for singing a particular song. This little light of mine. <laughs> she, she, she sang that all the time, right? And um, she put it in every speech. She had this, you know, half dozen verses that she would just riff on all the time, right? And so, and so it, it, it motivates me especially because I've been, I describe myself as evangelical adjacent. I've been around white evangelicals a whole, whole lot. Mm -hmm. And there's this bifurcation of faith and justice, faith and mm -hmm. activism, especially around race, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, it reminds me that not every Christian tradition makes that separation. Uh, it, when we looked at the Georgia Senate runoff, it was so interesting because it was Christian nationalism pitted against uh, the black church tradition. You had Kelly Leffler, a white Christian nationalist, and Raphael Warnock, who represented the black Christian tradition, even occupying the very same pulpit that Martin Luther King um, used to preach from at Ebenezer in Atlanta. And it, 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 it expands our definition of Christianity. And for me, it motivates me to put my faith in action, and not just on sort of an individual level, a pietistic kind of level, but in terms of justice. And uh, it was Cornell West who said, you know, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. And so these conceptions of faith, you know, melding with um, or motivating action on behalf of others, not just in my own personal social network, but more broadly in the community, mm -hmm. the state, and the nation. So um, for me, more than anything, I think it helps me do two things. One, find sources other 
than white evangelicals and white Christians, right? So, so in How to Fight Racism, I recommend you read uh, folks like Howard Thurman and his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, right? So that we know theology doesn't just come from dead white guys. <laughs> that there's an expansive Christian tradition. And then number two, sort of on a personal level, it, it, it spurs me on to action. Okay. Thank you for your question. Sure. Any more questions? Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Maddie. I am originally from the Mississippi Delta, mm. and I'm an alumna of the University of Mississippi. All right. yeah. um, and as someone who was going and attending school when a lot of change was happening, when we decided that we were going to no longer fly the state flag, when you know we were discussed, and a lot of that being pushed by black students, yep. I saw how emotionally taxing it was for them to go through all of that. And as someone who's um, getting their candidacy for PhD in, at the University of Mississippi, what do you see are the next steps for the university? Because I and so many other find ourselves still frustrated with a lot of what's going on, whether that's from faculty, whether that's from students who are indifferent, things like that. What are some steps that you think that we could do? Woo. <laughs> so the University of Mississippi is a prime example of the, the, the structural impediments to change. So at a statewide level, you have the IHL, which is this really weird mechanism uh, that, 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 you know, a statewide entity with uh, officials appointed by the governor actually has, you know, sort of final say over tenure at individual public universities, right? So whatever changes you want to make, you're going to have to persuade IHL to, to get on board or abolish it, which, you know. Um, and then, at the university level, there's a there's this long convoluted story that where the current chancellor, the the the, the job process is nothing anyone would agree to in, in any sort of fair hiring. Um, so so there's not a lot of confidence even in the chancellor of the university and his leadership, uh, and which is common at any sort of university or college, alumni and donors hold so much power. And so all of these are structural impediments to change. The only thing I see really working when you've got all those structural impediments is external pressure. And so even as we look at the state of Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement, it's when the Freedom Riders, and especially when white folks were involved in that, because then folks sit up and pay attention, um, when they came into the state and experienced all this brutality and that was broadcast in pictures and on film, that's when people said, oh my goodness, look what's happening in Mississippi, right? Even right now in Jackson, there's this horrendous water crisis uh, where people still don't have running water weeks after this snowstorm. And it took, um, for example, Angie Thomas and uh, KSA Lehman, two writers from Mississippi, tweeting about it to bring national media attention to the problem. And so it has to go beyond what James Silver called the closed society of Mississippi because the stranglehold in not just Mississippi, but um, many states is, is so intense that it is really only through, or, or one of the main avenues is through external pressure and bringing attention to these atrocities that a lot of people don't know about. And I think it would be the same with the University of Mississippi. Um, I mean, I can go on about the, the firing of a particular professor and 
our history department and, and, and how that created a national sort of headline uh, for a while and the, the, the sort of pressure that's put for change. But, you know, when you have those, that this, was the, this was the function of uh, slave narratives. When uh, people like Frederick Douglass and others wrote about their experience of enslavement and, and, and exposed their oppression to the rest of the world is when it starts to stir the momentum for change. So how can we constantly go beyond you know, the local institution and, and call attention uh, from the broader populace? Okay. Thank you, Jamar. I believe our hour is up. It's been a, been a full hour. <laughs> I've talked a lot, yes. Yes, but uh, we want to thank you for being with us today and want to continue this conversation, our work with you and our friendship with you and, and in the days and years ahead. And we look forward to following your work. And we want to be a part of that through sharing our stories. I will take and, you up and, on that, and, yes. Uh, and sharing our, our story together. I want to give a quick plug for um, um, the founder and CEO of The Witness, Inc. Mm -hmm. And we have two divisions, the Black Christian Collective, which is our multimedia arm. We're telling the story, the expansive story of the black experience in the United States from a Christian perspective, actually, you know, internationally too. And then our newest division is the Witness Foundation, the cornerstone of which is uh, we are selecting five promising black Christian leaders to train them in uh, nonprofit work and to fund them at, uh, to the tune of $50,000 wow. per year for each of the two years of the fellowship. So if you would like to support our first um, fundraising campaign, it's called the Will You Be a Witness campaign, you can go to thewitnessinc.com, thewitnessinc.com. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who joined us both in person and live stream uh, this evening. A reminder that both of Jamar's books, The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism, are available at or through Novel Bookstore here in Memphis. And I hope you'll join us Friday at noon, either in person or live stream for a sermon from the Reverend Meredith Day Hearn. We're all excited that she's returning back to Memphis and look forward to that on Friday. We wish you all a blessed, restful, and peaceful evening. Thank you. The Calvary Podcast theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator, and thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.